0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to my new podcast, Making Peace with Emotions. I'm Marshall Bolin. I'm making this podcast in order to share with you some things that I have learned over the course of more than 10 years, which have really helped me to make peace with my emotions, including anxiety, depression, and anger. Like a lot of people, I have endured emotional problems in my life. What I mean by an emotional problem is not just that I feel uncomfortable emotions, which everybody does, but that I've taken a lot of steps to try to not feel those uncomfortable and negative emotions, sometimes without even realizing that that's what I'm doing. And this goal of trying to eliminate and control negative and uncomfortable emotions is something that I took on from the culture at large, Most of us are exposed to a really widespread belief system that says that emotions are problems that need to be fixed, and that if you experience emotions that are too strong, or they last too long, or they don't make sense to you, then that means that there's something wrong with you and you need to try to fix yourself. When I was about 28 years old, I started having some panic attacks And I was telling myself that this was an indication that there was something deeply wrong with me, that I was abnormal, that there was something wrong with my mind or my brain, and that I needed help. It's true that I needed help, but it turned out that the kind of help I needed wasn't exactly what I thought. I sought the help of a psychologist who one of my friends said had some important things to say. And this man's name was Dr. Amr Barada. Through sessions with Amr, I learned a lot of things that had a major positive impact on my emotional health. So much so that Amr's model eventually became one of my main interests. And now I try to share it with people in different ways. I work with clients who want to learn it. I'm not licensed. I don't have a degree. But I have walked the path myself, and I've walked it for long enough that I know it well enough that I feel confident to help others to get onto the path. Amr Barada lived from 1938 until 2019. He was born in Cairo, Egypt, and he moved to the U.S. in 1963. He had PhDs in English and psychology, and he taught linguistics. From 1979 until 1999, He practiced psychology at Abbott Northwestern's brain injury department. And after that, he started his own private practice in Edina, Minnesota, the same town where I grew up. I feel really lucky to have worked with Amr. I've worked with him as a client and later as a collaborator. I produced some video interviews with him, and we worked on a few podcast episodes together. In this podcast... I'm going to be talking about things that I have learned and practiced from Amr's model. I'm dedicating the first 14 episodes to reading aloud, audiobook-style, Amr's self-published book for clients called Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. If you are enduring or have endured emotional problems like I have, I wish that you could see Amr, but Amr is no longer with us. So I want to bring Amr's model to you in the clearest possible way that I can think of, which is to just straight up read the book aloud to you. Because there's nothing in the book that I could say better myself. He did have a 40-year career. As we go along, if you think of questions that you'd like me to answer on this podcast, you can contact me through my website, www.marshallbolin.com That's M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L B-O-L-I-N. On this episode, I'm going to read the introduction and the first chapter to Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. The first chapter is called The Willingness to Suffer. If you want to get the book yourself, which I highly recommend, you can find it on lulu.com, L-U-L-U. You can search for Amr's name, which is spelled A-M-R-B-A-R-R-A-D-A, and the book will be available in both print and ebook form. So let's open the book Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression A Fresh Approach to Recovery, Amar Bharata, PhD. Preface The ideas in this book were first arrived at in 1977 when I was struggling to figure out the complexities of emotional problems, especially those relating to anxiety and depression. I had become convinced at that time that the prevalent ideas about how these problems developed and how they were maintained were not accurate. People suffering from these problems were seen basically as impaired in some very specific ways. They had severe deficiencies in positive thinking, in rational thinking, and had poor relaxation and breathing skills. To remedy these deficiencies, people were taught how to think positively, how to think rationally, and how to relax and breathe properly. It occurred to me at the time that perhaps the many failures of the -the state-of-the-art therapy may have been due to a faulty characterization of these problems. Perhaps, for example, people suffering from emotional problems were not deficient in positive, rational thinking, even though they appeared that way, and that there may be a way to understand their way of thinking that better explains their problems. Perhaps they were not unskilled in relaxation, and that their difficulties with relaxation may be due, ironically, to their strenuous attempts to relax as a way of eliminating anxiety and stress. When I first started working with people suffering from anxiety problems in 1979, I could see that my suspicions were accurate. When people were encouraged to accept their troubled thoughts and feelings, they functioned much better than when they were unaccepting of them. Being receptive to experiencing troubled and unwanted thoughts and feelings was much more conducive to peace of mind than trying to eliminate and control them. Allowing oneself to be anxious without necessarily relaxing was ironically conducive to relaxation. But it wasn't that simple. I also saw how complex emotional problems are and therefore how difficult they are to recover from. One of the biggest stumbling blocks to recovery is the inability to appreciate complexity, an example of which is the pervasive setbacks and relapses that people experience. Without an enlightened way of how to deal with setbacks and relapses, people can never recover on a long-term basis. I hope this book will provide many people with new ideas on how they can conceptualize their emotional problems and how they can get over them on a long-term basis. After more than 30 years of professional work with anxious and depressed people, I have become convinced that, with patience and wisdom, even the most troubled sufferers can arrive at long-term recovery and live very satisfying lives. Amr Barada, Ph.D., May 2011. Chapter 1. The Willingness to Suffer If you are someone who is experiencing significant problems with anxiety or depression— I want you to think back to a time when you had a strong experience with these feelings and became troubled by them. Do you remember saying to yourself something like, Why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't have these feelings. There's something terribly wrong with me. These thoughts and feelings are not normal. There's something deeply mysterious and weird about my feelings. It's not acceptable to feel this way. These feelings have to stop. These feelings must not happen again. If you are continuing to suffer from anxiety and or depression, you will recognize how common these thoughts are to you. I want you to consider something that you may have not considered before, that it is this way of thinking about your feelings that has played the most significant role in the development and maintenance of your emotional problems. In other words, I'd like you to consider that this way of thinking is not just a response to your feelings, but is responsible for why your feelings have become persistently problematic. I'd like to offer you new ways of thinking about your problems with anxiety and depression, many of which might come as a surprise to you. Put simply, it is the way you deal with anxiety and depression, the manner with which you process your thoughts and emotions, that determines the role and the influence that anxiety and depression play in your life. This is a key position that has constantly been asserted in theories of psychology for at least the past 50 years, and championed by the likes of Albert Ellis, Aaron Beck, Michael Mahoney, and Donald Meichenbaum, among many others. The good news is that as you become aware of the way you process your thoughts and emotions, you will have an excellent chance to recover from your emotional problems, For recovery to happen, it is necessary to have the courage to start making adjustments in your beliefs about your negative thoughts and emotions. It is these new beliefs that will lead you to recovery. This book asks you to challenge the beliefs that you have held onto tenaciously about yourself and about how you manage your thoughts and emotions, and to consider that it is those beliefs that have led you to your emotional problems. Your initial challenge is to figure out exactly what your current beliefs are. This book is filled with new ideas that will provide you with insights about your current deeply felt beliefs about anxiety and depression, and alternatives to these beliefs. Let me give you a brief example of this point. When people with anxiety problems first come to see me, they express very negative feelings about anxiety. So I often ask them the question, Have you ever thought of the possibility that anxiety is a good thing? I usually get raised eyebrows and comments such as, no, of course not, or that's contrary to how I think, or I want to know one good thing about anxiety. I then explain why anxiety is an extremely beneficial emotion. Without our ability to get anxious when we're confronted with any kind of danger, whether it's emotional or physical, we cannot possibly know that we need to protect ourselves. Anxiety alerts us to the presence of danger. It is filled with meaning about how we need to protect ourselves from harm. To people suffering from anxiety problems, this is a radical thought that has probably not occurred to them. They believe that their anxiety problem is caused by anxiety. They see anxiety as anomalous, as abnormal, as a defect of character, or as a deep, mysterious impairment that needs to be controlled at all costs. If you see the mere occurrence of anxiety as a sign of personal defectiveness, as a sign of mental illness, rather than as a natural and healthy response to thoughts or events in your life, you're on the way to developing an anxiety problem. Left alone, nothing problematic happens when you experience anxiety. It is your perception of it as an impairment and your strenuous attempts at controlling it and getting rid of it that make it become unmanageable. This is an important point because it indicates that the way to recovery does not depend on altering the experience of anxiety, but in developing a new way of thinking about anxiety. The same can be said for depressed feelings. I'd like you to think that the more you respond to your negative emotions, such as anxiety and depression, by seeing them as abnormal and unacceptable, and that you need to get rid of them or bring them under control, the more you become troubled by these emotions, and the more vulnerable you are to developing an emotional problem. I am hoping you can come to realize that your agenda for how to deal with your negative thoughts and feelings is an eliminative and control agenda, one that says you have to control and get rid of negative thoughts and feelings, and that this agenda is not only a response to your feelings of anxiety and depression, but is a main factor in the development of your emotional problems. I'd like you to consider four propositions about feelings of anxiety and depression. 1. You cannot control or eliminate them, they will happen whether you like it or not. You can manipulate them to some extent, but generally speaking, they happen because they need to happen. 2. You do not need to control or eliminate them, because there's nothing wrong with the feelings themselves. 3. Controlling and eliminating them deprives you of the beneficial role they play in your life. 4. The more you try to control and eliminate them, the more overpowering and out of control they get. In other words, the more you wage war against yourself and against your feelings, the more your negative feelings become a problem. The more effortful you are in this internal battle against your negative emotions, the stronger and more negative they get until you reach the point when you're anxious or depressed all the time, and violent anxiety attacks or waves of depression start to happen, quote, out of the blue. At that point, the feelings have acquired a life of their own. They have acquired a great deal of autonomy. They often explode into flashes of frenzy or episodes of hopelessness that you have no control over and that you are at a loss to explain. Your belief that suffering isn't normal, We all want to be happy. We constantly search for ways we can have satisfaction and contentment in our daily lives. We struggle to improve the quality of our lives by trying to effectively manage our relationships, our careers, and our personal time. We seek meaning and purpose in the various dimensions of our lives. We search for suitable partners, work hard at raising well-adjusted children, and seek financial security and comfortable homes. We seek pleasure and fun to add stimulation and excitement to our daily lives. We covet mental and emotional well-being. Yet happiness is so elusive. Suffering is so prevalent. The experience of tragedy is so common. If you haven't yet experienced tragedy, you know it's just around the corner. No one is spared. These are facts, and emotionally troubled people find it hard to accept these facts. Most of us do not mind having uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. We do not particularly like them, but we are receptive to them, and receptive to suffering as a natural and unavoidable fact of life. But many people are unwilling to have negative thoughts and emotions, unwilling to be uncomfortable, and are unreceptive to common everyday suffering. Those of us who hold on to this way of thinking are at risk for developing severe emotional problems. Having to deal with negative or uncomfortable emotions is an integral part of our everyday existence. We feel anxious when we're apprehensive, we feel sad when we experience a loss, and feel angry when someone has mistreated us. We can experience these emotions naturally on a daily basis and at any time, and they are part and parcel of how we manage our daily existence. Our lives can be filled with regrets for all the missed opportunities and wonderful successes we could have achieved, the things we could have acquired and the relationships we could have had. Our lives are filled with uncertainties about what the future has in store for us. All these play commonplace roles in our lives. Suffering and tragedy and the negative thoughts and emotions that are associated with them are prevalent experiences a reality which is not influenced by whether we're optimists or pessimists. And yet our desire for happiness and our aversion to unhappiness can be so strong that we often ignore the facts, and we insist on setting unreasonably high expectations in our pursuit of positive feelings. Much of the time, it is fine to strive for happiness and keep negative feelings at bay. Nor is it a bad idea to try regulating certain negative and undesirable aspects of our lives, those that are controllable. But when our efforts at manipulating and controlling our thoughts and emotions become excessive, we initiate a vicious cycle of negativity. Perhaps our very quest for happiness, especially when we pursue it with such vigor and such determination and such high expectations, may be partly responsible for why we can become so desperately unhappy. You may wish to consider that suffering is not only normal in the sense that everybody commonly experiences it, but that it actually plays a valuable role in our lives. It helps us identify the negative things that are going on in our lives that are not good for us and that are in need of our remedial attention. Without the ever-present feelings of stress, discomfort, malaise, yearning, and regret that we commonly and naturally experience, we couldn't even begin to identify the issues and problems in our lives that we need to address. And without attending to the problems in our lives, they can get out of hand and severely damage the quality of our lives. At the root of the internal battle that leads to emotional problems is the belief that there is something deeply wrong with us that we are defective in some permanent and irreversible way. It is a conviction that we are abnormal, that our negative thoughts and emotions are abnormal, and that human suffering in general is abnormal, that it should not be tolerated, and that it should be stamped out of our lives. If there's one thing that all people who have emotional problems have in common, it is their profound and pervasive unwillingness to experience suffering and the negative thoughts and emotions associated with suffering. Those who are afflicted with emotional problems are on a campaign to change themselves in a drastic kind of way. They're on a mission to improve themselves so completely that no one, including themselves, could ever find fault with them. They feel the need to correct all their perceived blemishes in a way that eliminates them forever. They feel that their happiness depends on living lives that are free of imperfection and free of suffering, and free of negative thoughts and emotions. On the other hand, people who are not at war with themselves and who live in relative peace with themselves are in a much better position to lead satisfying lives. Emotionally healthy people are willing to take whatever life has to offer them, including all the good things and the bad things that all humans experience. They do the best they can to live active, challenging, purposeful lives, and to enhance the quality of their lives as best they can but they don't mind the kind of suffering that all humans endure. They don't seriously mind the intermittent discomfort and inconveniences and stresses of everyday living. They take all that with the good things that life has to offer. They do not see suffering as abnormal. They are at peace with it. The difference between suffering and torment. We should make a distinction between suffering and torment. Suffering is something that all of us experience. But emotionally troubled people are not just suffering. What they're experiencing can better be described as torment. And so instead of asking how we should eliminate suffering from our lives, we should ask a different question. How can we manage the suffering that all of us experience, that is a natural and common and normal part of our daily existence, so that we do not experience the kind of persistent torment that permeates severe emotional problems. Poorly managing our suffering puts us at risk for perpetual torment. But when we manage our suffering well, we live lives that are filled with serenity and contentment. People with emotional problems are so desperate to banish negative thoughts and feelings that they often insist on bringing under control all feelings, whether positive or negative, and by so doing deprive themselves of any chance for joyful living. Interestingly, as people with emotional problems allow themselves to experience all emotions, regardless of their content or of whether they are positive or negative, they start to experience not only peace and serenity, but also joy and contentment. This book offers you a challenge. The challenge is to consider that it is your present, well-established beliefs about yourself, and about how you manage your thoughts and feelings that has led to your emotional problems. I will refer to these beliefs as the old belief system. Briefly, with the old belief system, you've been telling yourself, there is something very abnormal about me. I'm impaired in a deep and mysterious way. My negative thoughts and feelings are shameful and unacceptable. Suffering is bad for me, and I should try very hard to control and eliminate it. I have thoughts and feelings that are not acceptable, and I have to alter them and change them in a drastic way. If I can't succeed in making major changes, I will put my life on hold. Recovery from your emotional problems requires the courage to consider that a new belief system will work much better for you and will lead you to recovery. The new beliefs are, I am basically a normal person, but with a big problem, as opposed to an abnormal person with a small problem. There's nothing obscure or mysterious about my problem with anxiety and or depression. My negative thoughts and feelings are normal and acceptable. It is how they have gotten out of hand that has become a problem. Suffering is a normal, natural part of human existence and is acceptable. I do not need to eliminate or control my negative thoughts and feelings. I want to get back into living a life that is meaningful and purposeful. Often when we're stuck while trying to get what we want and having little or no success, it pays to start thinking counterintuitively and oppositionally about our present beliefs and their underlying assumptions, and to consider that the opposite of these beliefs will work much better. The author of The Eureka Effect, David Perkins, puts it this way, It's often effective to reframe the situation, to challenge the assumptions or present the problem in a different way. Or, to paraphrase a famous quote by Arthur Conan Doyle, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever left, however improbable, must be the truth. For example, if you have a problem with anxiety, you are probably persistently preoccupied with the need to relax. Your reasoning might be, if I'm persistently anxious, it must be because I lack relaxation skills which then drives you to work diligently at developing those skills. However, if this continues to be an ongoing effort that just goes on and on without too much success, you might wish to abandon the efforts and discard the assumptions behind them. A different view, which is oppositional to the present one, might be, perhaps the reason I'm persistently anxious is that I'm trying too hard to relax. Perhaps if I told myself I don't need to relax, I wouldn't be so anxious. Another example. Suffering is unacceptable and so allowing myself to suffer will weaken me. But perhaps the opposite is true. My receptivity to suffering will strengthen me. There's nothing wrong with being strong and resilient in meeting life's challenges. But it may be counterproductive to insist on being invulnerable and more helpful to be allowing of living our lives imperfectly. Challenging old beliefs can feel dangerous because it is normal to preserve what we are used to, preferring to stay away from uncertainty. But staying with beliefs that do not work and that lead to dysfunction is what is truly dangerous. As you read this book, you need to be patient as you start hearing your own beliefs more clearly, appreciate the problems they have caused you, and try out new beliefs that will lead you to recovery. You will resist many of them for being contrary to the dictates of your present beliefs. But those are the ones that, ironically, will help you the most. In the next chapter, we will take a good look at the beliefs that have gotten you into trouble with your thoughts and feelings. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. That was the first chapter of Amar Bharata's book, Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. And this has been the first episode of my podcast, Making Peace with Emotions. In the next episode, we'll read Chapter 2, From Old Beliefs to New Beliefs. If you'd like to learn more about me or Amr Bharata you can go to my website, www.marshallbolin.com. Until next time, peace. <laughs>